I've never encountered someone with a third eye. You know, like a legitimate seeing, blinking eye in the center of their forehead. So I can't say I know how I'd react. Now, I used to love the sideshows at state fairs and circuses. Two bits to see the Flipper Boy, the Albino Woman, and Zambora, Girl Gorilla. I loved the freaks. Not to make fun of, although I'm certain these poor souls were not living a life of dignified existence. I loved them. They had an outward manifestation of how I felt inside, and I felt a bizarre kinship. Once, on Chicago's Lakeshore Drive in my turquoise Geo Metro with my window down on one of those seven or eight nice days available in Chicago during the year, I pulled off on Fullerton and looked to my left. There was a dude in the passenger seat of the car next to me with an elephant man arm. The arm was huge in proportion to his torso. The skin was bubbly but solid. It was awesome. That is awesome! Look at that dude's arm! So cool! Except that the elephant man didn't really take too fondly to my enthusiasm. Joe and Jason shrunk in their seats, and the car sped off as Joseph Merrick called out, Fuck you, man! To this day, I feel shitty about it. I comprehend the concept of a black Trump supporter. Ben Carson, Candace Owens, Stacey Hash. I mean, I understand that a black person of either wealth or conservative ideology might see something in it for them. There are race grifters on both sides of the partisan highway making fat cash on nothing but the color of their skin in some sort of I'm black so I speak for black people pulpit. The idea of a regular run-of-the-mill black person who is a supporter of one of the most obviously bigoted presidents we've had since Woodrow Wilson is hard to conceive, like a dude with a functioning third eye or a woman who can change before your very eyes into a gorilla I'm both fascinated and mortified. Now, I know I'm not supposed to talk politics at the casino. It almost never goes well and gets in the way of their purpose, losing their money. The head sports writer, on, sports writer on our property and I are the only true liberals in the joint, so he and I once in a while commiserate our dis, disdain for the GOP, Moscow Mitch, and the Trump dump. Now, he and I are in an in-depth discussion of my assertion that there is hope to be fostered. He's less optimistic. We talk about the work of Steven Pinker and of using the data available to mark progress rather than the lived experience of those victimized. Then the unicorn walks up to place a bet. He's a young black guy, maybe 25, wearing his mask. You know, he interjects, if people look at me, they make a lot of assumptions. I'm black, but I don't get a whole, I don't just don't get the whole Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, Trump has done a lot of good, a lot. It wouldn't matter what he did. CNN is going to make it sound bad. Is that a third eye? The words and the image are not, not, not. In, 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 in. Sing, 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 sing. My mouth, known internationally as an unfiltered spew of whatever is in my head, wants to pop off with, what? Are you fucking stupid? Trump is a menace, a monster. How can you, a young black man, possibly be against black lives mattering? The cost of a decade of social media has my Twitter brain engaged as a non-thinking weapon that I am compelled to unleash. I stop my mouth and focus on the fact that I'm staring at an almost mythical creature. If he were the flipper boy, I'd have more curiosity and wonder. I cork the troll in my brain. It's interesting, I say. So what good do you think Trump has done? I mean, not to be combative, but in my eyes, I, I seriously cannot think of one thing. 
He cut taxes. I look into his eyes. There's no animosity there. He's standing up to all the countries that have mooched off of the military forever. I mean, I don't really care who wins next month. I think they're both the same. I'm not going to change my life either way. All the information I have in my head from years of confirmation bias, plus the stakes I see in this election, collide with both my sense that an argument on the casino floor is verboten and the recognition that this guy is earnest and not looking for a fight. Years of writing about the need to control our knee-jerk responses is key to a unified, functioning society. Slap me in the face like that Batman meme where he's whacking Robin. I can see that. I mean, I don't, I don't agree, but I can see your logic. Maybe I don't care for Trump and I like Biden because I wouldn't want to sit down and eat a meal with Trump, but I think a dinner with Biden would be a fine time. He laughs. Yeah, Trump would hog the conversation and make the whole time about himself. Yeah, and he'd probably chew with his mouth open. So you're voting Biden, huh? I am. You don't think he's too old? Well, Trump is 74 and Biden is 77, so I think that point is moot. I mean, I think they're both too old, but the choice seems to be, to me, to be between that old man screaming at kids on his lawn and the old man who springs for all the kids to get ice cream when the truck rolls by. The truck? Yeah, the ice cream truck. Never heard of it. The sports writer who's been silent pipes up. Don is a lot older than he appears, and we all three laugh. The unicorn places his bet. Pleasantries are exchanged as well as a fist bump. He moves to the bar. I still don't truly understand the idea of a young black American supporting Donald Trump. I do understand a disdain for Black Lives Matter as that movement shifted in the last year from advocating police reform to a wholesale push to eliminate police altogether and an academic orthodoxy of racial separation rather than unity. On the other hand, I am a classic leftist who believes that the disease of our experiment is income inequality and the fight between Wall Street and Main Street rather than racial divisions who believes in reparations but bristles at justified riots and looting, who does not embrace socialism whole cloth but looks for a healthy blend of socialism and regulated capitalism, who is seen by the far left as a racist Nazi and by the far right as a drooling libtard. And it occurs to me that I might be the freak after all. I remember hearing an old Jewish joke about the guy who won't stop complaining about how thirsty he is. Oh, I'm so thirsty. So someone finally gets him some water, and everyone's relieved that his kvetching stops. Then a minute later, he starts moaning, I was so thirsty. The slow descent into delusional pain is a remarkable thing to behold. Even more bizarre is when you realize that it is you who is causing the follow-up. In 1989, after living in my truck for four months, getting certified in Illinois to teach, getting hired as a library substitute, and leasing a crummy studio apartment in a building smack up against the neighborhood crack house, I was mugged. It was after a night of playing jazz. I left my horn in the truck and decided at 3.15 a.m. I needed some Shoney's breakfast. There's a Shoney's just down the street. As I strolled past the Granville Red Line stop, I was hit in the back of the head with a board. Three young black men, I mean teenagers really, proceeded to kick and punch me, demanding my wallet. I made the mistake of trying to fight back, but I was prostate. My punch kind of held no power, and the result was an intensified round of kicks to the ass, to the stomach, to the face. They ran off with 14 bucks. Now, for weeks after, 
I found myself telling the story. The people I told for a while gave me that requisite sympathy and horrified reaction. Once the black eye had received, I had received faded though, the story elicited less and less response. It became that thing that happened to Don. I also found myself expanding the story. As the responses became less, well, the teenagers became grown men. As less sympathy came my way, they, they had gang-affiliated clothing. They all three had boards and hit me with them instead of kicking me. And a closer friend than most pointed it out to me. He said, you're exaggerating your mugging, dude. Why? I mean, I mean, you were mugged, right? I hadn't even been aware of the increasing drama of the tale. It just sort of got grander in scale with repetition. I came to understand that I was hungry for that initial reaction, the sympathy, the center of conversation, the horror at my plate. I liked being seen as a survivor of crime. I'm being mugged became, I was just mugged, which transformed into, I survived being mugged. To, Did I ever tell you about that time I was mugged? Now, of course, I'm Irish and born in the South, so colorful exaggeration just comes with the territory. But this, this was something different. I was mitigating my trauma of being beaten in the street with the good feels and empowerment that came with being seen as both a victim and a survivor. Now, in 2010, four social psychologists from Stanford University published an article called Victim Entitlement to Behave Selfishly in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. All right. The researchers randomly assigned 104 human subjects into two groups, members of one group were prompted to write a short essay about when they felt bored. The other group was to write about a time, quote, a time when your life seemed unfair. Perhaps you felt wronged or slighted by someone. Now, after writing the essay, then they were interviewed. And then, as a follow-up, they were asked if they wanted to help the scholars in an easy task. Now, the results, apparently, were very surprising. Those who wrote the essays about things being unfair were 26% less likely to help the researchers and were rated by the researchers as feeling 13% more entitled. The researchers also found that members of the unfairness group were 11% more likely to express selfish attitudes. So that's the thing. And I've written before about the lens we use to see the world and how that choice determines so much more in our terms of our behavior. And this is actually a perfect example. The more you focus, turns out, the more you focus on how unfair things are in your life, how victimized you have been, the more you see it all around you and the more selfish you become. Case in point, when C.N. Wilson, a professor at Wilfrid Laurier, Laurier University, had her car broken into overnight, her conclusion was not that of a particularly well-adjusted citizen. I mean, she immediately determined that it was broken into by police because she is BIPOC, which is shorthand for victimized member of society, and is a defend, defund the police activist. So she's so accustomed to seeing herself as a victim and survivor, Wilson, without a shred of evidence of any kind, determines a random vehicle break-in to be in lockstep with her continued victimization. Her lens is fixed, fixated on her own victim status, and so anything that can fit the narrative does. This lens is empowering while at the same time debilitating. I'm convinced that Wilson genuinely believes their car was broken into by police, yet her conviction in the face of no evidence nor any rational reason for authorities to rifle through her stuff is no more compelling than any other random conspiracy theory. Her sincerity is no more the truth than the president's conviction that mail-in ballots are fraud. 
Now, we've all read about the existence of confirmation bias, the strange phenomenon that posits we believe improbable things that fit what we want to believe so we can't fault those so ingrained in the attention and power of their own victimhood narrative. We all know one of those people, the kind that proved the rule that misery loves company. I am encouraged that actual victims of harm are receiving more attention and justice. I suppose if a side effect of that authentic reparation is that more and more faux victims come out to complain, gain attention, and become distractions from real harm, it is little more than having to put up with that miserable person seeking attention. That person who was so thirsty. Quote, for mine... I am an optimist by nature. My reading of history is that the world has always stepped back from the edge of disaster. Against all odds, here we are, alive and kicking. That's Rabbi Leibel Wolf. Optimism isn't merely hope. It isn't happiness or a cheery disposition. Optimism is an, an act of resilience against the brutal harshness of living the existential crisis. Its darkest just before the dawn implies that there will be a dawn. What if there won't be? What if it's just more darkness? If the implacable timpani of human greed, a self-correcting planetary environment, and the algorithm defi that defines our modern interaction has no end, should that result in giving in to the despair? As optimism is a breeze when things are going your way, despair is the path of least resistance when things turn to dire. Seeing through the mist at a better future takes effort and commitment like a solid marriage or a massive novel you've committed to writing. It's a project to be managed, not a feeling to languish within. One cannot truly call himself an optimist who refuses to see the horror. Pretending that people are essentially kind and generous is stuffing the ostrich head in the sand. People are apes with higher brain functions and follow the rules of the jungle. Tribalism, essentialism, war for resources, the history of brutality of all humanity goes far beyond Hannah Jones' 1619 project. Taken in whole, we aren't a very enlightened and forgiving species. Further, Optimism is an individual choice. It's not something that can be enforced, but it is something that can be inspired. The American experience, despite its many missteps and flaws, is grounded in a belief that humans can govern themselves justly and effectively. Given the larger picture, belief in democracy is only slightly more delusional than the guy playing slots so he can pay his rent. The odds are astronomically against success, and that Yet the choice to persevere is made. Quote, We have to reject the notion that we're suddenly gripped by forces that we cannot control. We've got to embrace the longer and more optimistic view of history and the part that we play in it. If you are skeptical of such optimism, I will say something that may sound controversial. I used to say this to my staff in the White House, young interns who would come in, any group of young people that I met with, and that is that by just every measure, America is better, the world is better than it was 50 years ago, 30 years ago, or even 10 years ago. That was President Barack Obama. I miss him. This isn't just 
hopeful bullshit. This is completely pragmatic, data-driven reality. Despite the horrors of police killing unarmed black men in viral videos that seem to crop up every other day, the number of unarmed black men killed or injured by police in America has decreased dramatically in the past five years. Despite the heartbreaking realities of homelessness in America, more people have more access to food and health care than ever in the history of the country. Despite the histrionics of the trans activists burning Harry Potter books as an expression of quasi-authoritarian outrage, the LGBTQ plus community is at a unique and unprecedented place of societal acceptance in America. And that's not hopeful thinking. Those are cold, hard facts. Optimism is not rooted in fantasy, but grounded in seeing a fuller picture and recognizing progress when it smacks you in the face. Ignoring the macrocosm and expanding the microcosm's importance is the choice of children. A child only sees how things affect himself. An adult comprehends that there is more to see and a larger consequence to that ego-driven hyperbole than self-interest. It's darkest before the dawn. There's the rub. What if there is no light at the end of the tunnel? What if Trump manages to maintain his seat in the Oval Office? What if he packs the SCOTUS with a 6-3 conservative majority? What if we go to war with China? What if the planet continues the onslaught of climate disaster? If history tells any story at all, it is this. There is always a dawn. In the closing moments of the horror film, The Mist, based on the Stephen King novella, after enduring a terrifying night of uncertainty and surviving monsters, both genuine monsters and the monsters humans reveal themselves to be under extreme fear and rage, Thomas James is finally escaping. With him is a woman and a child. Once the vehicle runs out of gas and they're still enveloped by the impenetrable mist, they hear what they believe are more monsters. In that moment of despair... James decides that dying by his hand is better than facing the monsters. So he shoots both the child and the woman as he prepares to kill himself. The monsters he fears turn out to be soldiers. And the true horror was his giving in to the fear. If, after the pandemic is under some semblance of decline, the economy starts to find its footing and Trump is in prison, either in 2022 or 2026... You give in to the despair, you're going to feel pretty fucking stupid and then spend the rest of your days justifying your short-sighted pessimism. If you mourn Justice Ginsburg and laud her achievements in changing America for the better, yet respond to injustice by throwing cans at cops and justifying looting and destruction, you will have missed the lesson of her life. She never screamed in the streets or stomped her existential adolescent feet to express her desire for a better future. Ginsburg focused her rage and slowly, deliberately, and effectively worked through the democratic system she believed in and fomented lasting change. Recently, a poll indicated that roughly two-thirds of Zoomers did not know that six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. The tragedy is not in their myopic narcissism and pathological disregard for history. It is their dismissal of those who survived the Holocaust because they refused to give in to despair. When you see someone who has one of those death camp tattoos on their arm, you're witnessing a genuine, tried and true, bona fide optimist. Optimism is hardest when things turn to shit, but it is then 
when it is most necessary. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly podcast featuring stories and thoughts from an arrogant, overly confident white guy. Lots of episodes were recorded while I was living in Chicago, and now I'm in Las Vegas. Check out donhall.vegas for updates, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts.